Hello and welcome to the fourth part of my lecture series, COVID-19, Dodgy Science, Woeful Epics. Yesterday, we discussed how the World Health Organization's incorrect and incomplete grasp of the facts and its deep confusion about pandemics, coronaviruses and their controllability <clears throat> set us on the wrong path in responding to COVID-19. Today we look at another big mistake. The other big mistake in our response to COVID-19 was the early and decisive formulation of the key medical intervention for this disease being ventilators. The flatten the curve strategy of reducing infections to match hospital resources assumed that saving lives <clears throat> was a matter of providing COVID-19 patients with ventilators and critical care. <clears throat> but ventilators left the picture in Europe and the US almost as quickly as they entered it in March. By early April, doctors there began to report that ventilators were not helping all COVID-19 patients and might even be harming them. So very quickly, once they actually began seeing patients, doctors in Europe and the US found that they had to think beyond ventilators for treating COVID-19. They began looking at delaying intubation and also at less invasive therapies for breathing support. The focus expanded from ventilator care to other treatments <clears throat> as doctors began to understand the way in which SARS-CoV-2 attacked the lungs and how the body's immune system responded to it. The shift in attention from ventilators to the way the disease progressed in the body opened up investigation into antivirals to inhibit SARS-CoV-2 from multiplying and also to enzyme inhibitors to block those aspects of the body's natural immune response system that were exacerbating the damage caused by the pathogen itself. This is a living example for the world of what clinicians say that medicine is a practice and it's not just about machines and equipment. In China, Japan, India, Bangladesh and other countries in Asia and Africa, doctors immediately, as early as February and March, when COVID-19 was first detected in their borders, began to use drugs like hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, doxycycline and various antiviral prescriptions like lopinavir, ritnavir, ivermectin and favipiravir for the treatment and prevention of COVID-19. By about April-May, the Japanese had started trials with Avigan, an antiviral preparation containing favipiravir that it had earlier approved for certain influenzas. The Bangladeshis announced excellent results with a combination of the antiviral ivermectin and an antibiotic called doxycycline. And India's Council of Scientific and Industrial Research began looking into the repurposing of 25 drugs including favipiravir for COVID-19 treatment. <clears throat> These are only some examples from Asia and Africa of the immediate work that was started with different therapies to help COVID patients. 
The Americans and Europeans were slower off the mark with antivirals and other drugs than the Asians, Russians and Africans. This may be partly because doctors in Asia and Africa who regularly treat tuberculosis, meningitis, diarrheal diseases, dengue and malaria, among other infectious diseases, are more experienced with these drugs than Western doctors. We'll go into this aspect a little further down. Eventually, even the US sent an antiviral prepar preparation called Remdesivir for approvals, uh, which has been in the market since late June. At around the same time, the UK, uh, UK scientists claimed to have improved results on intubated patients with a drug called dexamethasone. There doesn't appear to have been much innovation from continental Europe or the Nordic states with drug therapies for COVID-19. <clears throat> Indeed, as we go through our survey of COVID-19, the decrepitude and dullness of these places contrast sharply with the youthfulness and dynamism of Asia. Some of the effects of severe COVID-19, such as blood clotting, noticed as new and atypical by Western doctors, are similar to those observed in patients in the final stages of any illness when they're headed to sepsis and septic shock. Some of the worst cases of COVID-19, descriptions which came from the West, sound similar to patients in the last stages of Ebola in West Africa or dengue in India. Anticoagulants like heparin for critically ill patients were included right at the start in India's clinical management guidelines for COVID-19. Chinese doctors cataloging the clinical course of illness in hundreds of patients in Wuhan in January submitted numerous new journal articles emphasizing the observation of thrombosis, which is blood clotting, in critical cases, and also noting that elevated levels of a substance called D-dimer correlated with cases that proceeded to become severe. A lot of the issues raised by Italian and American doctors in March and April, when they were first hit by COVID, about being careful of lung damage from intubation, keeping pa patients dry, that is being conservative on fluid replacement because that can exacerbate the, uh, inflama the inflammatory response around the lungs uh, when you have this disease. Um, <clears throat> and on the timing of intubation uh, are covered as a routine matter in the Indian guidelines for COVID-19. And this may well be the case for other Asian and African countries as well. By the middle of April, there was a recognition even in the West that the blood clotting and other things that they were uh, considering to be atypical and unexpected um, <clears throat> might be part of the general deterioration into sepsis that is seen with several viral diseases. And eventually, Western doctors also began to talk about adding anticoagulants like heparin to the treatment. So, <clears throat> Apart from the somewhat slower uh, sort of uptake uh, by uh, doctors in uh, Europe and the US on uh, this disease as compared with Asian and African ones, uh, what you have here is a very different picture of the treatment of COVID than the one envisaged in the flatten the curve model where everything hinged on ICUs and ventilators. By the middle of May, ICU facilities that had been surged by rich Western countries, as frantically recommended by their epidemiologists, were being shut down, many without having seen any patients.
In England, the uh, National Health Service, the NHS, had taken over convention halls in five cities, converting them into open-plan ICUs with thousands of beds complete with ventilators and other critical care equipment. Uh, these were called the NHS Nightingale Hospitals. The one in London was opened with great fanfare by Prince Charles himself. <clears throat> and uh, by mid-May, three of the NHS Nightingale facilities were closed without having seen a single patient. Without having seen a single patient. And the London facility, which had a capacity of 4,000 beds, was closed after having seen only 54 patients. The same story was repeated in the US. The engineering corps of the US Army had been seconded to set up thousands of hospital beds in convention halls and other big venues around the country. <clears throat> However, many of them didn't see a single patient, including in New York, which was the worst affected city, not just in the US, but at the time, perhaps in the world. And by early May, all of these facilities were being scaled down. A British medical journal report, BMJ report from the time, quotes some British doctors as being extremely critical of this. Richard Sullivan, the director of the Institute of Cancer Policy, King's College London, is quoted as saying, the trouble is that Neil Ferguson's modeling was wildly exaggerated. You cannot rely on a model to predict what happens with a pandemic. You cannot rely on a model to predict what happens in a pandemic. There are too many variables. There are too many variables. You need good local intelligence to work out what the transmission rates really are. This did not appear to have happened. Another doctor who tellingly for the repressive atmosphere of the time wanted to remain anonymous, questioned the disproportionate focus on intensive care capacity given the massive spread of COVID-19 in prisons, old age homes and dementia wards, which was not anticipated and went unnoticed for weeks with tragic consequences in the UK. <clears throat> Interestingly, ventilators were not front and center of the Chinese response to their COVID-19 outbreak. The WHO China Joint Mission Report gives ventilators and ECMOs extracorporeal membrane oxygen, oxygenation machines. Uh, this is like an external lung which uh, sends oxygen directly uh, into the body of very, very sick people. So these, these ventilation and ECMO machines are only given a passing reference uh, in the WHO China Joint Mission Report. Uh, it says uh, it, it, that in critically ill patients, it can uh, improve survival and goes on to say the Chinese go on to then mention a whole range of treatments uh, that they used for COVID-19, including chloroquine, phosphate, antivirals and traditional Chinese medicine. Ventilation and ECMO, according to this report, were given only to about 4.4 of the total hospitalized COVID-19 patients as opposed to the figure of 30% that was taken uh, by the COVID experts group. If you remember, after they called up uh, a doctor uh, somewhere in England <clears throat> to ask him what he thought the percentage might be. And uh, in China, the rest of the severe and critically ill patients were given oxygen supplementation. Oxygen supplementation also requires equipment, but of a much simpler variety than ventilators and ECMO machines. Some of them can be used at home and are available for hire. 
They don't even require oxygen cylinders as they operate by concentrating the oxygen from the air. All of this is much less costly than hospital intensive care. A fraction of unlucky patients who might become critically ill may require full ICU intervention. But there were many more options for the rest that the epidemiologists clearly had no idea about. What this tells us is that epidemiologists really need to spend some time with actual doctors and patients. It is absurd for them to go about making predictions by models alone without knowing anything about the actual practice of medicine. <clears throat> the emphasis by epidemiologists on ventilators was dubious from the start. Anyone who has seen a relative being moved to intensive care knows that ventilation is not a cure. It is a measure of last resort taken when all other treatments fail. Most of us who have been through the hospital grind with older relatives see ventilators not as a life-saving therapy but as a death knell. We know this. Spouses tell each other that when the time comes, they'd rather not be put on a ventilator but end their lives peacefully at home. There's a popular belief that once people go on a ventilator, you may never see them again. And research for this paper revealed the scientific truth behind that popular belief. 30 to 50% of ventilated patients don't make it. So <clears throat> a lot of patients may have been lost in Europe and the US because of the overuse of ventilators at the beginning of their COVID-19 outbreaks. Not having enough pulmonologists and ventilator trained nurses to take care of the sudden surge in ventilated patients, doctors from other fields and untrained medical students and nurses were deployed in hospitals in places like New York. And um, this was all very proudly declared. All of this is uh, in the public domain. <clears throat> and this is in contrast to the Chinese approach where they designated separate hospitals for severe patients and to which they deputed teams of pulmonary specialists. <clears throat> what, uh, what we need to understand is that high-tech ventilators are complicated to use. Intubation is a highly invasive procedure in which a tube is sent deep into the patient's body and it, doing this requires a certain degree of training and experience. The machines have different settings for air pressure flow and need to be carefully calibrated to the capacity of the individual patient's lungs to withstand the pressure of the air being pumped in. Um, initially, this wasn't done carefully enough and uh, some Italian doctors then came out to say that that in itself may have been, um, patients may have been lost because of that. Okay, even basic things like turning over an intubated patient which has to be done every two hours and feeding them through a tube requires skill and experience to avoid internal damage. So it was probably a mistake to use untrained personnel for ventilated patients in New York and these other places. In Italy and the US, <clears throat> ventilator protocols that were initially used for COVID patients were the ones that had been developed for acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. 
based on the ARDS protocols, patients were being sedated, they were being actively sedated and put on ventilators going just by their oxygen levels. But doctors reported, doctors on the ground in New York and other places, and Italy reported that this was often causing further deterioration in the patient. And some doctors disagreed with patients being actively sedated and intubated according to these ARDS protocols when their breathing was relaxed, their heart rate was not high, and they were able to speak in coherent sentences. <clears throat> Dr. Kyle Seidel, an emergency and critical care specialist in Brooklyn, New York, started off a discussion at the end of March over the need to change ventilator protocols with an impassioned YouTube broadcast. He said that COVID patients were not behaving like typical patients suffering from lung collapse and there was a need to change the way in which they were being looked at, what he called the treatment paradigm, which was based on ARDS at the time. We discussed uh, in my previous lecture the way in which the experience with SARS clouded judgment on the part of the World Health Organization as to the most suitable response to COVID-19 and the ventilator protocol for ARDS as understood, I mean, you know, that's used everywhere, but as understood, you know, in, um, in these uh, Western jurisdictions, uh, intubating someone who's coherent and, you know, who's not injuring himself by heaving uh, too much. This is another example of how uh, assumptions from prior experience were not working for COVID-19. Doctors in Italy, led by a world-renowned critical care specialist, Dr. Luciano Gattinoni, reported that the pressure at which the air was pumped into patients with lung collapse from ARDS was too high for COVID-19 patients. So what was happening was that uh, the, um, the configuration of the walls of the lung uh, for someone with a typical ARDS was uh, able to withstand the high pressure at which the oxygen was being pumped in but this appeared not to apply to some COVID-19 patients because some of them showed good lung function despite lower oxygen saturation levels. Um, Dr. Gatnoni uh, and his colleagues said that although such patients should be watched for future intubation in case their breathing became labored, Many patients did not progress to that stage and should be given other breathing support. Intubating such patients was also exacerbating the problems from vascular damage caused around the lungs by COVID-19. A paper by Dr. Gattinoni and colleagues warned that even when patients were intubated, attention should be paid to treating fluid collection and inflammation around the lungs caused by COVID-19. This gives us a hint that perhaps these aspects of COVID-19 disease had been missed with the early excessive reliance on ventilation. <clears throat> what emerges is that critical care is not, as envisaged by the epidemiologists, a simple matter of ventilators and oxygen supply. Such a simplistic understanding of critical care even endangers patients as it fails to account for the importance of training and experience in their use. The decision about what treatment to use involves a much more subtle calculation than the one that the epidemiologists were making of simply matching numbers of patients to numbers of ventilators. 
where you don't have the staff to man complex uh, equipment, it's better to start looking for other forms of treatment and this is what doctors began to do. <clears throat> An interesting comment from Dr. Kyle Seidel at this time, which throws light on how a novel disease situation demands novel thinking, is his description of how as an emergency care specialist, he was able to see COVID-19 patients in different stages and degrees of illness, from the emergency room, to hospital floors, to the ICU, and how this gave him a wider picture of the progress of the disease, unlike the ICU doctors who were only receiving patients, in his words, on breathing tubes. So we get some hints here about, uh, you know, the impact of hyper-specialization and uh, established protocols, uh, ways of looking at uh, disease um, in a very high-tech, scientifically advanced, resource-rich uh, uh, countries uh, that were not, uh, not, 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 um, that were not, not the right ones and that were not meeting the demands of uh, COVID-19. As they worked through their COVID-19 epidemics, <clears throat> critical care in rich Western countries saw both a quantitative as well as a qualitative change. The protocol for intensive care units in first world countries is one nurse per patient. This is quite different to in intensive care units in India, where a nurse would serve more than one patient. In India, intensive care units are built on an open plan with beds arranged on a perimeter around the nurse's station, who then have a 360 degree view of the room and all the patients. So in advanced countries, the ICU protocol was one nurse per patient. But things changed dramatically once COVID came to their shores. For, one, for instance, in the UK, the NHS Nightingale ICU facilities were opened with thousands of beds, but just a few dozen staff. So much for the one nurse per patient rule. Professor Charles Knight, a senior doctor and functionary in the, in the NHS, who was seconded to the London NHS Nightingale as CEO, spoke of the importance of cutting bureaucracy and expanding NHS hospitals in-house intensive care units in a manner that used fewer resources in the future. So very quickly, after being hit by the COVID outbreak, there was a rethinking in the design and resources to be allocated for critical care. Um, what we're seeing in the West, what we're seeing here is that while the epidemiologists worked with a static and rather flat idea of critical care, in reality, critical care was a much more adaptable and dynamic thing. This is not something that the epidemiologists accounted for in their calculations. In fact, no modeling, however refined, could really predict or account for these things. They are not numerical factors and cannot be expressed in numerical terms. The epidemiologist is too narrow a canvas, too limited an eye to take these sorts of things into account. If you follow the discussion in developed countries among doctors around COVID-19 treatment, what comes through is that the issue they had to contend with was not so much the availability of ventilators as the inflexibility of top-down treatment protocols devised by hospital administration. 
the entire thrust of hospital organization in advanced countries is for the adherence to consistently applied protocols. But this might be making them less agile than is required in a novel disease outbreak. It might be getting in the way of the innovation and flexibility that the moment demands. With COVID-19, we have to remind ourselves that protocols in big hospitals may often be driven by considerations that are not necessarily scientific, <clears throat> but come from things that are typical in highly developed countries, such as the fear of being hit with big lawsuits and insurance policies that restrict a doctor's ability to experiment with different therapies. Listening to Dr. Kyle Seidel in interviews where he talks about the need to reconsider ventilator protocols, one gets the impression that while some colleagues might have supported him, changing hospital protocols is no easy matter. In the end, Dr. Kyle Seidel was moved out of the ICU because he said that he could not in good conscience follow protocols that he believed were harmful and the hospital was unable to change them. So what we see here is that the reality of big hospitals with worries about litigation claims and maintaining insurance cover is that what should be a purely technical matter for doctors, that is, what treatment protocol to use, is not in reality so. To steer clear of litigation and insurance trouble, a big hospital has to diligently follow set procedures. In this way, a big hospital becomes a place for churning out medical services as a sort of assembly line of treatment. It's not a place for thinking. Consider how futile and even dangerous this makes the hospital in a time when we're confronted with a novel disease that defies the rules. How can a new treatment be found without innovation, receptability, openness and giving some space for trial and error? something that has become an anathema in advanced countries with their risk-averse, insurance-driven, litigious culture. Will the media and lay public give doctors and public health authorities the space to experiment? Or will every death, every failure be blamed on them to a chorus of condemnation from news broadcasters all around the world? In this atmosphere of hypervigilance, why would doctors be encouraged to think and try new things? They'd be safer to follow the protocols. This is a very toxic situation for us, uh, just as the lay public. You know, we have to get, uh, we have to inform ourselves and we also have to be a lot wiser. You know, um, we're not helping ourselves by uh, pretending that there's an answer and clinging on to protocols and um, and then you know insisting uh, to be served uh, medical services uh, because the truth of the matter is that at the moment i mean things are better a little better now than they were uh, when the in march but you know medicine doesn't really have much to offer if you do uh, get a really severe uh, case of covid Okay, um, and what you need to do, I mean, uh, is to is to create the space where uh, uh, it can uh, it can be figured out, and um, this is not the way to do it. 
Right, so Dr. Kyle Seidel was forced to come on social media as he was unable to persuade his hospital administration to allow him to calibrate ventilator use to what he saw in his patients and hopefully his honesty will not prove to be career-destroying. His and Dr. Gattinoni's intervention sparked off an energetic debate on ventilator protocols and protocols in general among doctors in New York who were at the front lines of the COVID-19 outbreak. And while some doctors took a more conservative approach, expressing their dissatisfaction with working on what they called merely anecdotal evidence, without widespread clinical trials, many doctors reported that within weeks of these events, hospitals had pulled back on their initial response of rushing COVID-19 patients to intubation based on ARDS protocols. And uh, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of interesting material on this, and I encourage you to uh, have a look at it. I've put it on my blog. There was a report by the New York Times, which is particularly interesting because they interview a lot of doctors. And um, you, you, you can get a sense of a lot of things. I mean, even the doctors who take a more conservative approach, they, they, their whole demeanor you know, is different to the ones who uh, were concerned about you know, just putting to sleep uh, patients who looked okay. And you know, th those doctors just tend to be a, a little warmer and... Um, you know, less uh, sort of uh, taciturn <laughs> in their manner. Um, th th these are all things that we, we have to start picking up and, and thinking about, you know, without overemphasizing it. I mean, uh, th there's no magic formula here, but we just have to, uh, uh, we just have to ask more questions and, and be a little more observant with what's going on around us. Right. So, Rigid protocols might also have played a role in retarding the search for drugs for COVID-19 treatment in the West. While Western experts continue to debate the use of hydroxychloroquine and the WHO has been plodding along for months with its solidarity, solidarity trial for this and other drugs, the Indian medical authorities advise this drug as treatment for severe patients and as a preventive for doctors and high-risk contacts of patients right up front. Um, uh, in March, when we went into lockdown. The Indian Advisory for Hydroxychloroquine as Prophylaxis states the position clearly and simply. This is what it says. Hydroxychloroquine is found to be effective against coronavirus in laboratory studies and in vivo studies. Its use in prophylaxis, which is prevention, is derived from available evidence of treatment as supported by preclinical data, the following recommendation for the use of hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic agent against SARS-CoV-2 infection is based on these considerations as well as risk-benefit consideration under exceptional circumstances that call for the protection of high-risk individuals. For the treatment of severe COVID patients, India's clinical management guidelines say no specific antivirals have been proven to be effective as per currently available data. However, based on the available information, uncontrolled clinical trials, hydroxychloroquine combined with azithromycin may be considered as an off-label, uh, that's a technical term for without cl uh, clinical trials, off-label indication in patients with severe disease and requiring ICU management. So the Indian guidelines take a practical view given the limited options and the severity of COVID-19 disease. But Western medical authorities don't seem to have this ability to just be practical. Um, I believe that there were uh, some very senior French doctors 
uh, and age matters here because you know it's a, it's another generation and way of thinking who uh, who uh, were, you know advocated the use of hydroxychloroquine and it was pushed back and uh, I mean one of these doctors got so annoyed about this because he said he'd been using hydroxy that you know hydroxychloroquine had been in use for decades and decades uh, that he he resigned his position. Um, <clears throat> so. Uh, the risk profile of drugs like hydroxychloroquine may need to be recalibrated by taking into account their potential for profile access and treatment given the limited options available and the current state of science for COVID-19. Even the idea of the clinical trial, which keeps rejecting therapies that doctors at the bedside find are working on patients, might need an overhaul. I can already hear you know, any doctors listening that say, oh, no, 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 but you know, um, they may need an overhaul. On the other hand, uh, there can be no neat answers because it is true that ignoring protocols also has its risks. Uh, some clinicians will object uh, quite reasonably that intervening in this way will complicate the clinical picture. That's their jargon for, uh, it will complicate the picture of what is the true progress of the disease in the body and hence make it harder to find effective interventions. And these are all valid considerations. Uh, perhaps instead of looking for neat universal solutions, we just have to uh, have an open-minded and incremental uh, approach, uh, you know, even a dialectical <laughs> approach, being very conscious when we take a conservative line of the risk of missing out on innovation in treatment and equally being conscious of the risk of abuse uh, when we take an unconventional approach. And I think it's, it's a pity that the WHO has stepped in to conduct cl clinical trials itself because uh, firstly, you know, it's not a lab. And it adds to the, con uh, the, the confusion with the solidarity uh, trials. Uh, what it should have done instead was to have shown leadership by spotting these oppositions between you know, a conservative, a laissez-faire approach and, and a, a more protocol-driven one and encouraging uh, countries to be aware of them and to evolve a way of negotiating these oppositions in finding, a solution, uh, in finding solutions for COVID-19. Um, <clears throat> private enterprise is doing be better with encouraging new thinking. Online physicians platforms like Sermo began to publish data on the use of hydroxychloroquine and antiviral drugs by physicians around the world. On Sermo, you can already see the emergence of a new language and a groping for new standards in drugs testing to deal with the new realities of COVID-19. In their about section, they use the term observational study, which is described by them in these words. They're called observational studies because the investigator relies on the physician's self-reported or observational reports of treating patients without manipulation or intervention. This is in contrast to randomized controlled clinical trials which are designated, uh, which are designed experiments where investigators intervene and look at the effects of the intervention as an outcome. While randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials are still the gold standard for assessing the safety and effectiveness of therapies, observational studies are a fundamental part of epidemiological research." Unquote. Sermo's focus on physicians' experience, even its disclaimer to the media listed under the title on its website, how Sermo studies compare to the scientific standard of polling, 
show the first glimmers of a paradigm shift in standards and the emergence of a new scientific language to deal with the new challenges of COVID-19. Lines are being crossed in other ways too. For all the blame game between China and the West over COVID-19, doctors from these countries immediately got into a conversation with each other over treatments for COVID-19. Doctors across the US spoke of the need to consult with Chinese and Italian doctors and to learn from their experience with this disease. Established journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet and the British Medical Journal published COVID-19 case studies and findings by Chinese doctors and, national and Chinese national research institutions. And Chinese medical journals in turn also published COVID-related research that had been meticulously translated into English. In fact, listeners would be interested to know that the exchange of views and research through medical journals has been going on for years between Chinese and Western doctors. <clears throat> what you have in all these developments is the breakdown of established systems of hospital organization, medical practice and pharmaceutical standards. While this may throw up new questions, the process of questioning the fundamental principles of hospital and medical practice is of long standing in the medical field. The study of these questions is part of the regular curriculum of medical students, many of whom would be familiar with the, with the philosopher Michel Foucault's seminal work, The Birth of the Clinic. In this book, Foucault chronicles changes in the field of medicine just before and after the French Revolution using these changes both as a metaphor and an example in philosophizing about how systems of thought, institutions and modes of practice come into being and how they change. There are important lessons in the present time in Foucault's exploration of the different ways and objectives with which hospitals and clinics were organized at different times, emerging, as he argues, out of the play of ideas between medical expertise, social, political and economic concerns about medical practices and institutions, and the lay sentiment towards hospitals and doctors. Foucault engages in this interrogation of changes and new developments in the medical field without in any manner denying or diminishing the validity of medical science as science. I quote, this is what he says in the introduction to the book. I should like to make it plain once and for all that this book has not been written in favor of any one kind of medicine as against another kind of medicine or against medicine and in favor of an absence of medicine. It is a structural study that sets out to distangle the conditions of its history from the density of discourse as do others of my works. This is precisely what makes Foucault's work on medical science all the more compelling for present times, in which we're always being told, especially by non-scientists, to follow the science. You can follow the science and still question its institutions and currently favored trends of thought. At a very simple level, Foucault tells us that we don't have to be tied to established categories and systems of hospital organization. 
if current best practices for hospital protocols or clinical trials are not working to help COVID patients, then we can break them down, mix them up, abandon or invert them. If established divisions between areas of medical specialization are obscuring a full understanding of the disease, then let those divisions be dissolved. COVID-19 has changed the game, and this is the time for questioning and not compliance. Only through the recognition that the old truths no longer hold can we have the free and honest scientific inquiry that this moment demands. Italian doctors were quick to intuit the misalignment of their current medical practice with the exigencies of a highly contagious disease like COVID-19. What they, this is what they say, coronavirus is the Ebola of the rich. The more medicalized and centralized the society, the more widespread the virus. Uh, this was uh, Dr. Mirko Nakotti and colleagues from Bergamo, um, the major epicenter in uh, Italy, uh, writing in the New England Journal of Medicine. In another article that I rec recommend to you all, it's uh, uh, linked on my, on my blog, called Hospitals as Health Factories in the Journal of Nephrology, Dr. Georgiana Piccoli writes, uh, I quote, the coronavirus epidemics should indeed lead to a number of reflections on the organization of healthcare and the way contemporary medicine has lost sight of some diseases, such as infectious ones, that were probably prematurely seen as diseases of the past. We have definitely not won the fight against infectious diseases, but we've probably forgotten about them too soon. In a high-tech setting, I'm continuing what she says, in a high-tech setting, it is all too easy to forget the overwhelming, often dark power of nature. So the medical world can take this as its Foucauldian moment and ask for radical changes in confronting COVID-19. Those who do should expect resistance, as happened with Dr. Kyle Seidel. Each way of organizing systems comes with its own hierarchies and privileges, which will resist change. We do not know what new ways of medical thinking might run up against which commercial interests in the pharmaceutical research or medical insurance field. Even non-commercial actors in the health sector, like developmental or philanthropic organizations such as Médecins Sans Frontières, the WHO, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation may push back against new ways of doing things as a result of institutional inertia, the fear of losing prestige, and the fear of other earlier interventions being questioned. A radical rethink is discomforting for all established players in the field. And established players include the news media. Without rejecting the mainstream media out of hand, the public needs to be conscious of the alignments and camaraderie that have built up between the media and those in the health establishment over decades of collaboration and exchange on health issues. This is getting in the way of a proper scrutiny of the current situation by the media, apart from its uh, fairly universal uh, lack of basic uh, scientific and mathematical understanding. 
The politicization of the COVID crisis has also worked against a sober and fair scientific assessment of the situation. Only through open scientific debate will better ways of treating, treating COVID-19 emerge. Some doctors and academics were quick to see this and they have already begun to chip away at the established protocols and treatment paradigms. Prestigious universities and affiliated hospitals have set up online forums like the Oxford COVID-19 Evidence Service run by Oxford University and Nuffield Hospital. This portal puts out research pointing out gaps in the scientific understanding of COVID-19 as well as contradictions and uncertainties in the data and epidemiological analyses of the pandemic. Many medical journals assisted by publishers like Elsevier and uh, ResearchGate.com made papers on COVID-19 available free to the public on their online portals. Some papers were put out even while they were still in review to facilitate quick and open discussion of COVID-19 research even at the cost of peer review controls that apply in normal times. Now, these were not exactly dispassionate exercises entered upon purely uh, for an objective discussion of the science. The outrage of uh, some scientists at the mainstream view, the preference for this or that approach, a greater or lesser emphasis on certain aspects of the many issues that arise, all are fairly evident in the work that has been put out. Not all the work that has come out will stand the test of time and positions will be softened as tempers cool down. But what is important for us as the lay public to understand is precisely the contested, contingent and tentative nature of the science of COVID-19. It is from this churn of ideas that a better understanding of the disease will emerge, but this needs patience and restraint from the watching public. Above all, we have to be open to questioning everything Query whether there can be any science without questioning. The idea that the science somehow settles itself is something only non-scientists believe. In reality, science is peppered with paradoxes, unsolved equations and unproven assumptions. They're even given names like uh, quantum uncertainty and the Riemann hypothesis and Fermat's equation, uh, which was only solved a few years ago after three centuries, okay? But no one said that, you know, there's no... Okay, um, scientific research is pervaded with debates that have no settled answer. Albert Einstein didn't believe in the existence of black holes. He wasn't impressed with the idea at all, even though the idea of black holes was developed from his own theory of relativity. Um, and, you know, interestingly, uh, the idea of black holes comes from a form of mathematical modeling. So, uh, in general, Einstein seems not to have been greatly impressed with modeling as a method of reasoning. He even famously said of quantum physics that God does not play dice with the universe. This is the elevated level to which we have to return in the sciences. From Galileo to Isaac Newton to Einstein, none of the paradigm shifts or fundamental breakthroughs in science have come from the bean counting exercises of modeling and number crunching. Many great mathematicians like Ramanujan 
and physicians like Stephen Hawking saw the answer first and then spent the rest of their careers trying to demonstrate it in mathematical terms. So the idea uh, or the understanding or the intuitive insight, I mean, I, there's no name for it, um, maybe there should be. Um, this is in a way, it's greater than the science. In a sense, the science only follows the understanding of the understanding in, in its raw, almost instinctive or uh, inspired form. And if you, you know, if it, I think Newton said that uh, science is 1% uh, inspiration and 99% uh, perspiration, or, or was it Edison? And, you know, this is true, but you take away that 1% inspiration and you don't really have, uh, you don't have science anymore, you know. Uh, no supercomputer can ever, ever do what, what Isaac Newton did when observing an apple falling from a tree. Also, uh, contrary to the picture portrayed by the lay media, scientific and indeed any field of academic inquiry does not progress from one certainty to another. It's more a process of ongoing argumentation, testing and revision. It's a conversation. At its best, it's an erudite and measured conversation in which the questions add to our understanding as much as the answers, but it is a conversation nonetheless, quite different in tone and intent to the oracular quality that uh, scientific assessments are given in the lay media these days. This concludes uh, part four of this lecture series. I hope I, I've given you something to think about. Because that's what we need to do. We, we need to think. We're in an unprecedented situation uh, of having been completely let down by the experts, at least by the experts that are heard. Um, you know, I mean, it's not as if there haven't been dissenting voices, but once you actually dig down uh, into all these epidemiological reports, I mean, the mistakes are, are so obvious or, or, you know, the fiddle, it's not even, this, these are not mistakes, the fiddle is so obvious. Um, people can't, you know, people couldn't have got away with all of this uh, if we weren't already uh, in a culture where, uh, in, in a situation where something had already gone very wrong in the sciences um, and in uh, public policy thinking. But... We, we have to start thinking about this because it's it's going to be um, it's going to be ordinary people like us who will give courage uh, to the people you know from the scientific community um, to actually you know come out and start questioning this and you know I mean scientists and doctors uh, if you're listening to this break your silence because uh, after looking at all of this material, I mean, in, in a way, I was reminded of my, you know, early love for science and um, I went in a different direction. But 
you know, I'm thinking, how can anyone who actually loves science operate in in this environment? Because you know, I you know, one can see what's going on, and this is your moment. You know, because uh, this time, it's they've they've gone too far, and uh, you can speak out. It's just you know, you've got to speak out, and. Um, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about is that uh, someone asked me in the beginning of this whole saga uh, if I knew anyone with COVID, and um, you know, and and I was thinking, and not only did I not know anyone with COVID, uh, but that's because at the time uh, it hadn't yet come here. I don't know any scientists. Um, you know, I mean, my batch, my maths batch. most of them uh, are doing uh, modeling <laughs> you know they are either data analysts or they've gone into finance um you know i mean so it's a very curious position we are uh, this is this is supposed to be uh, this scientific response you know uh, that the whole world has subscribed to and uh, you know where are the scientists and um you know and it's also where is the uh, where is the science because once uh, as i said in my first lecture once you actually dig down into epidemiological reports the problem is that there's no science uh so i mean this is a this is like a massive uh, bad situation and uh, and i know that there are people out there who who know and understand this and uh this is the time you you know you've got to start speaking out because uh, what's happened is just absurd so okay i said that i had concluded a while ago now i have actually concluded and um uh please join me uh tomorrow uh today's lecture will go up later tonight on my blog covidlectures.blogspot.com where the full paper and parts 1 2 and 3 of my earlier lectures have already been published along with links to the youtube videos and podcast for this series see you tomorrow 7 p.m. India time, 2:30 p.m. London time, 9:30 a.m. New York time on Facebook Live for another round of the COVID lecture series, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Thank you.